May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. You know, more than anything else that Jesus left us in his lifetime is what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it stands at the heart of all his teachings, if you will. And when you think about it, it has, without a doubt, the most complete summary of Christian theology ever written, ever given. You know, think about all the topics in that short phrase, if you will. It covers the fatherhood of God. It covers the holiness of the Father. The coming of the kingdom, a call for God's glory, a plea for our needs, amnesty or forgiveness of all wrongdoings, and deliverance from the evil one. What more could you ask for? Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. There's nothing in there about love. But when you think about it, the one who taught it to us is the one who is love. He's the shepherd about to lay down his life for the sheep. And if that's not love, then I don't know what is. So this is a complete statement. And think of the hundreds of tongues that pray this prayer to God the Father every single day, if not just on Sundays. And there's surely no language on earth in which it is not said. Notre Père, que est en ciel, un sabbata en himel, le chachon toi a tren troi, we papa in haben, parge nuestro que estas en los cielos. And considering the prayer's popularity, it's impossible that there should be a single moment at any time, day or night, when it's not repeated somewhere in Latin, German, Chinese, Spanish, Swahili, Cambodian, Vietnamese, English, Tongan, Korean, Swahili, you mention it. It's all there, Jamaican and Hawaiian as well. In all the languages on earth, and almost like a Pentecost experience, a jumble of voices from the perspective of heaven, a great choral symphony rising from God's saints, that's all of us here, around the world. And what an incomprehensible feat it must be achieving of bringing the kingdoms of this world that much closer to becoming the kingdom of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to verse 1. The request of the disciples. And we often think of John the Baptist as a prophet and a martyr. And yet Jesus' disciples saw him as a man of prayer. And maybe that's why they said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And they had been on the road with Jesus for some time now. And they may have noticed that from time to time, Jesus took a little time out to go and pray. And it may have just occurred to them that maybe, just maybe, there was a connection between the time he had alone and the time he spent so effectively with people. Jesus made it clear that his ability to communicate with people was a product of his availability to communicate with his heavenly Father. And remember, John was a miracle baby, born late in life to Elizabeth and, and Zechariah, but he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born, and he was also a product of prayer. John had the privilege of introducing Jesus the Messiah to Israel, and yet as a baptizer, not as a Baptist, but as a baptizer, 
he prayed. And Jesus said that John was the greatest of all prophets. And yet John in his ministry depended on prayer. Now, if prayer was so vital to this man who had all these honors, how much more important prayer ought to be to us. And so we pray, Lord, teach us to pray. And by the time Jesus came along, there were prayers for just about every occasion that you can imagine. And although the original tent was good to show God's involvement with every aspect of life, the prayers over time had degenerated into formalistic formalistic utterances, dull and dogged, and their devotional words severely damaged. And some of the forms of repetition were almost self-hypnotic, as if getting into a trance. And it didn't take a great spiritual insight to guess the result of the Pharisees' encouragement. Whoever prays the longest and loudest is heard by God. Now, we see so many stories about that. And that's why Jesus taught so much about prayer. And each lesson was like a hand grenade, really, thrown into a Pharisaic prayer meeting to deconstruct what prayer had become. It boiled down to two things. First, don't do it for the sake of appearance. And second, don't do it for the sake of applause. And who better to teach than Jesus, who was a man of prayer? In his Gospel of Luke alone, Jesus prayed at his baptism before he chose the 12 disciples, when the crowds got large, before he asked the disciples what the crowd thought of him, and even at his transfiguration. The disciples wanted to learn from Jesus this secret spiritual power and wisdom. How many people went to the rummage sale? How many people just left stuff for the rummage sale? Yeah, that's great, yeah. And so when we look at that, we have over, I don't know how many years we've had the rummage sale, but it's been there, there, and there. And almost as an ongoing thing, we forget that it takes a lot of effort. And over time, we've had people step up, and recently, this season, we had two wonderful people. I'd see. One's up there. Where's the other one? Oh, up there. And later, check their matching T-shirts that they found at the rummage sale. And because in many ways, what's been done was a blueprint for the next generation to take over. And so it is with this prayer. It's a blueprint, if you will. And so when Jesus was asked, teach us, Jesus, in his usual style, avoided a long lecture and simply prayed. He prayed. And as a blueprint for prayer, it's been used to tutor us and all the future generations ever since. And Jesus' aim was just to give a pattern of prayer, not the prayer, but a pattern of prayer, not a magic bullet, a magic formula. It was his way of helping them and us to learn how to voice real needs and to articulate deep problems. And just as I mentioned that I'm helping a lot of our uh, Asian caucuses how to speak to our Western congregations because so many of them are overseas born and just have a, not a full grasp of contemporary English. But over the years, our familiarity with this prayer since childhood has unfortunately, just like those old prayers, dulled our sensitivity to its purpose and power. But even a quick look, a casual look, unveils what this prayer could be, all of its breadth and concern such that there is value deep into it. And while we often call this the Lord's Prayer, not because Jesus prayed it, remember, he never asked for forgiveness, 
but because Jesus taught it. So Jesus is the author of it, so we call it the Lord's Prayer. If anything, it is the disciples' prayer because we as disciples of Jesus, we pray this. And there's nothing wrong with praying this prayer personally or as part of a congregation so long as we do it from a believing heart that's sincere and submitted. And how easy it is just to say the right words out of rote memory and not mean any of it. And we know what that's like when we just hear things from our kids as they grow up. And that's why it's good to hear things differently, do things a little different from time to time, like the reading of this passage from the Hawaiian Bible, just to catch our attention. You know, each phrase in this sermon is a sermon in itself, but we're not going to do a sermon for each phrase, but I'll just touch on some of these and then go on to the parable that Jesus teaches at the end. There are three distinctive movements, if you will, that I see in this prayer. First is that Jesus ponders. He thinks he ponders on God's character. Jesus petitions both for God's glory and for our needs. Jesus praises, affirming God's greatness in a doxology at the end of the prayer. So Jesus ponders, he petitions, and he praises as a way that we should approach God in our prayers. So by beginning with our Father, Jesus sets the stage that this is a family prayer. And we often call this, let us pray, the family prayer. A family of those who know God and trust God as Father. And in many ways, Jesus modeled this prayer as intimacy, if you will, but without familiarity. And there's no rush to get, got to get to these requests right away. He wants to honor God as Father. The next phrase, in heaven. That calls us to the fact that God is not some run-of-the-mill, off-the-shelf deity, but the God of heaven, sovereign, mighty, and exalted. He is no pushover, nor will he be a party to anything that's not clean or straight. God is intimate without being intimidating, all-powerful without being overpowering. And then comes these set of petitions or these requests that express God's concern for us that he will be correctly considered, uh, that it will be correctly considered by God. And notice the words in that prayer. It talks about your, not my, like in your name, your kingdom, or your will. If you want, if you open your hymnal, you can follow along page 895 if you forget what the prayer is like. But it talks about your will, your kingdom, as opposed to my name, my kingdom, and my will. So the first appeal is, hallowed be your name. As the first and foremost honoring and revering of who God is, applying the truth of all that he is, that are his values, his desires, so that they become our values and our desires. And strictly speaking, this should be read as, your name be honored. For this is the God whose name is hallowed, not hollow, but hallowed or holy. And that's why it's first in this prayer. Your kingdom come means a spiritual relationship through a personal relationship with Jesus whose arrival established the kingdom of God. And here is that longing for God's rule and order to be triumphant over the disruption and disorder and chaos of our broken world, which leads to your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It comes next logically because the evidence of God's kingly rule is submitting to his loving rule. 
And clearly the will of God is not just a natural thing to do. We fight it. I fight it. We all resist it. But Jesus is also aware that there is an opposing kingdom that has a demonic, dynamic will that's totally opposite to God's attention for us. But still, it's acknowledging the priority of God first. And then comes the next set of requests. There are three of them. It's for our human needs, for sustenance, salvation, and security. And there's also a distinct pattern there where it talks about things being communal, as we use the words us and our throughout that prayer. Give us today our daily bread. And we acknowledge that our bodies are gifts from God, and we need to be sustained and maintained. And then forgive us, us, our debts. And we have also forgiven the debts of our debtors. And Jesus presents sin as a debt because there are no deposits that we could ever do that can wipe away the red of what we owe to God. We have this open window to deal with our guilt and confess our spiritual bankruptcy. And we have this debt forgiven because we are confronted with our accounts overdue. And Jesus knew the scripture about God's response to sin when it is confessed. God blots it out. God covers it up. God sinks it, forgets it, and forgives it. So that's a powerful request. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. The consequences of canceled sin, it's enormous. As many of you know, I've done many years with Cairo's prison ministry, and I jotted some notes down of some people I've met over the years there. There's Jose. He's 36. He's in for a death sentence for life. There's Omar. He's 27 more years to go in prison. Mark is down for 30, and there's no end date. Brandon, he's Jewish, a crack cocaine user. Jesus, he's only 36. He's been in prison for half his life. There's Yusuf. He's a Muslim from Afghan. He's on a drug charge. And Harry is in a detention cage. He met a man who murdered his father and beat him up. All these other have different yet same stories, and each gave up a street life for prison. And many of them knew and know that I'm also an attorney, and so I give them their Miranda rights. You have the right to remain stupid. Anything you say or do will be used in a court of life. But you also have the right to counsel to Jesus for a new life. And when they confess their sins, yes, they still have time to serve, but they are released and they have a new relationship. Because when we talk about canceled sin, Jesus taught that if we could not forgive and release another from indebtedness towards us, regardless of the offense, then we neither understand the death of our own sin nor the expansiveness of God's mercy. It's not how much do I like them, but it's how much has God loved me. In other words, we're either forgivers or forgetters, like the Pharisees who specialize in hypocrisy. Lead us not into temptation. We have to watch each day what we're stepping into because the world is a minefield. Things are always exploding around us, and not just politically, but spiritually as well. Faith is always on trial. If you don't believe it, read the book of Job. I've been reading it, and there's a lot of things I'm learning about it. Jesus is saying that we have to make a budget, if you will, or make margin or expect temptation because it will happen. One traveler said it this way. 
when we're not conscious of temptation, we should certainly pray, lead us not into temptation. And when we are very much aware of the onslaught of temptation, we should pray, deliver us from evil. And yeah, there are dangers all throughout. It's appropriate then that the Lord's Prayer ends with praise. And after all, Jesus just said that we can legitimately expect God to answer our prayers for the resources we need for ourselves and for forgiveness of others. And that's why we say, yours be the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Jesus continues his teaching with a brief parable. And I'm sure that everyone here can give us ten reasons why God would not hear or answer our prayers. And sure, we often pray a lot harder when we feel God is not giving us immediate attention, just like our kids would scream louder if they don't hear us think we're responding to them. But Jesus wanted his disciples, including us, to know that verbosity is not the same as vitality, or that fluency is not the same as a sign of faith. No, Jesus wanted us to learn about persistent praying, that everyone should pray constantly instead of being it as a last resort, like a lifesaver in bad times. And Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray by using this story about unexpected out-of-town guests who show up. Has that ever happened to you? People kind of show up at your doorstep? It sounds like something I would do, but I read a real story about something I would have done two weeks ago when our granddaughter was born. But a few years ago, someone accidentally got included in a group text from a couple announcing the birth of their new son. And they just happened to send it to a wrong phone number. And we've done that. I've done that. But regardless of this unintended message, the receiver and his brother decided to, hey, let's go check this out, even though they were strangers. So they got in the car and drove from Florida to Georgia to the hospital, and they showed up with gifts to surprise these new parents as such. And they wrote this in a Facebook. What a blessing these two guys were to our family. They were so sweet and kind to do this. You two are great guys, and thank you for giving to someone you don't know. Do you know anyone like that? The story reminds me of the Magi showing up at the birth of Jesus, visiting Mary and Joseph. Unexpected, but a blessing. But Jesus argues in this story that if the appeal to friendship fell on deaf ears, then the persistence of the door knocker would gain entry into the homeowner's breadbasket. And Jesus advocated that we should ask with expectation, that we should pray searchingly, and as, if, as if hunting for a hidden an object, and that when we knock with vigor, unthreatened by all the lights that go on in the spiritual neighborhood, and all the voices that would stop us from being fed when we most need it, the door will open. And because this guy persists, he gets as much as he needs, as the Bible says. But we're not talking about numbers of just getting only three loaves of bread, but the Bible says specifically, but needs. Got everything he needed. Needs as if as many loaves as it takes to satisfy what's involved. And yes, there are varying shades of intensity in our praying, but it should come down to this. My certainty in God's ability to answer my prayer adequately and appropriately should never waver. Jesus says that we need to pray persistently. We need to knock and knock until the door is open. And another way of putting it is, I've read someplace called shameless 
audacious prayer. We go to God because he knows what we need. We go to God because he will provide, but on his time. We go to God because he wants to know if you know the truest desires of your heart, God will provide. Shameless, audacious prayer fully understands what it means to be persistent, that key to getting an answer to prayer. And Jesus is very specific about how we should pray. But he's also very specific about when we pray, we should, and it should be familiar to all of us, we need to ask, seek, and knock. I'm looking forward to September when we start our Ask series in the fall quarter with new classes on how to come get closer to God. And as the disciples listen to Jesus pray and teach, who knows how much they took in, how much they actually learned. And maybe when the rubber meets the road, when we finally get it, especially when the disciples witnessed Jesus praying in the garden before his arrest, Jesus said, not as I will, but as you will, or as we would say, thy will be done. And only long after his arrest that it occurred to the disciples that despite Jesus' heart that night, it was more likely than not that his final words out of his arrest as he got up to brush the dirt and wipe the blood off were, thine be the kingdom and the power and the glory. Words of a prayer truly spoken by a son who was deeply in love with his father. So we need to be people of shameless, audacious prayer. Why? For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. And when the door is open, you'll find a God whose name is hallowed. Thanks be to God. Amen.